Hello, everybody. <clears throat> Happy Sunday. Uh, glad to see you guys here. If you're part of Calvary Church and you regularly come, uh, man, thanks for your investment, our body, what you do. And if you're visiting Calvary and uh, you want to know what we're about, well, about two people will probably be able to guess what I'm about to say right now when I say what we're about at Calvary Church. Because two of you, right, kind of hear me say it every week. The rest of you are like, he's saying something, but I don't know. But, but here's what I say almost every week, right, because I think it's important to remind ourselves and to know what are we as a body striving to do, right? When we think about what God's Word tells us, how have we distilled that? And so what we're trying to do here at Calvary together is we're trying to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. Build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. I think we should give a quiz, right? <clears throat> like in middle school. And if you win, you get a free Frosty at Wendy's if you can properly recite the vision on the way out. But it's important, right? Because that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to do that because... As you look in Scripture, that's what uh, the Bible seems to be some core things that bodies of believers and churches are about. And so a few ways for you to get involved in what's going on this week, a few ways for you to get involved in our body of amazing people here at Calvary Church is we announced it last week. But for ladies, coming up um, in a few days, there is a women's brunch. It is just a time. We have amazing opportunities for women throughout the week. And we have mops. We have Bible studies. We have some community groups. And so this goal, this environment is, hey, let's just try to create a space for ladies to just come together and hang out, right? Get to know each other. Uh, no big agenda other than getting a chance to care for each other and connect for each other and deepen our ties within the body. So there's information about that in the bulletin. Um, the RSVP for that is May 4th, so love for you to pay attention to that. And this women's brunch is cutting edge. Here's why. Because I've been to some events lately, and the new trend at events is a flower bar. Have you all ever heard of this flower bar? Well, ladies, if you come to the brunch, you will get to experience a flower bar. And it's not like the color race where you throw bags of flower on each other, right? Um, but RSVP, information in there, love for you to do that. And great opportunities after this service to grow as disciples in the classes we have kicking off. And then what we want to do, and what's really important for churches to do is not to become inwardly focused. I think it's really easy for churches without meaning to, to be like, oh, we get together for brunches and we have great Bible studies and we just love each other and we're a family, which is amazing. But when that family starts thinking about other people who aren't yet part of that journey, that's when problems become. And we never want to become inwardly focused. We never want to just be about us on the blue chairs. We want to be about people who aren't yet on the blue chairs, who maybe have questions about spirituality or life or hope or Jesus. We want to create a space. So we do want to personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and his truth. And so a couple of points about that, and then we'll get into the text. An amazing means of impact that we've had for decades is our Summer Spectacular, a summer camp we put on with Bible-based uh, lessons. We have hundreds upon hundreds of kids in the building. That is not a Baptistic evangelistic exaggeration. It is true. Um, and so if you'd love to have a neighbor come or somebody you know come, there's opportunities for you to sign up. If you'd love to volunteer, we need uh, a ton of volunteers, right? I forget the number, but I think over 100 people help us put this thing on. And so there's opportunities in your bulletin about that. I'm saying bulletin a lot because I don't want to step up here for an hour and a half and just tell you all the details. So check that out. And then we have two teams going out this summer. We have a Philly team of our students, and then we have a team of adults going to the Dominican Republic. And throughout the month of May... We as a body are going to have opportunities to support those teams that are going out through ways we can pray for them, for ways we can provide resources for them to take on their trip, and for ways that we can provide financial resources so that anybody who wants to go on the trip will be able to and cost won't prevent anybody. So look and be watching in the kiosk and car wash signs and all sorts of stuff about that. So a couple of ways that we don't just want to talk about being a body of disciples who impact others. A couple of ways we're actually doing it. And we're so grateful for all of you who serve to enable us to do those things and all of you who are involved. And we would invite all of you guys, man, find a place, plant a flag, and uh, let's keep going into what God has for us. All right. <clears throat> what God has for us, 
for approximately the next 46 minutes uh, is a little bit of revelation. And so that's what we're going to get into. So let me, some of you are panicked. It's like, seriously, 46 minutes? I thought there's going to be like 10 minutes. And I've already like spent 10 minutes talking now, so another 46. So let me pray, and we'll get, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get. I don't know why we're all laughing. You're laughing because you know it's true. It's like, yeah, we knew that, whatever. All right, let me pray. Uh, Father, we're grateful for your work. Um, you are good to us. You are kind to us. You have steadfast love, and thank you for that. And you don't make us guess about who you are. You give us opportunities to open up a book where you have preserved teachings f- from you for us to read about. And so we're thankful that we don't have to guess, but we can know truths about you. We're thankful that you do put us in bodies of believers, and we don't have to try to live a very difficult, challenging life in a broken world by ourselves, but we do it with brothers and sisters in Christ who support us and encourage us and challenge us, and that's a blessing. And so thank you for that blessing here and in so many local churches around us. And so God, we open up your word now, and we want to know truth, and we want Jesus to be honored and glorified, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've ever skimmed through the book of Revelation, uh, which I did prepping for this and getting ready for this, you come to chapter 12 in the book of Revelation. And for me, before preparing for this series, man, chapter 12, um, it it is a, and I don't mean this irreverently, the symbolism in chapter 12 is bizarre. And whenever I came to chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, I'm like, bro, I don't have any idea what any of this is about, right? It's, 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 uh seems hyperbolic, symbolic, language, what is going on? There's this weird metaphor. And it's always been one of those chapters that I've, as a guy who's been doing this almost two decades, is like, I, I don't know what is going on, right? Something's going on, and it seems unique, but I don't know what it is. And so this past week, I've just been so grateful for the opportunity to spend some time for myself, learning what is going on in this chapter and understanding it. And not only that, but realizing a huge practical implication and takeaways from what is contained in chapter 12. And so if you're like me, and maybe you've read chapter 12, maybe you haven't, but when we read it, this is going to be a great chance for us to take a stab at knowing what the chapter is about, and then just as importantly, understanding, okay, how does that impact us? What does that mean we should watch out for, we should be aware of? And so our text today is Revelation chapter 12. If you are visiting us, what we do is we open up a book of the Bible, we go through a paragraph by paragraph. We've been going through Revelation for a good bit now, and our text today is chapter 12. And so I'd love if you have a device or a Bible to open it up, flip it open, follow along. Um, and we're going to kind of work through, first of all, structurally, where this chapter fits in the whole deal. And then we're going to study and see a sequence of events uh, and a sequence of attacks, really, that are recorded in this. Chapter 12 is really a, uh, you know, if you ever read uh, nonfiction books about battles and wars, those books contain sequences of different moments in that battle or that campaign or that conflict and draws it out. I remember, man, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, for whatever reason, I just got really into I got big into reading books about the Civil War, just kind of got on a kick. And you read all these books that detail different skirmishes in that conflict, and they record it. And in many ways, what we're going to see is a record of different skirmishes and different conflicts that are recorded for us. And then we're going to think about how do we respond to that. So structurally, and then four different kind of sequence of attacks, and then we'll end our time thinking about how do we respond to that. And so... Let's think about first, where in chapter 12 of Revelation does it fall structurally? I know the answer is between chapter 11 and 13. Okay, I, I, I know that. But like more importantly, structurally, what does it uh, relay? What is it, you know, where does it fit in the story that's being told? And so last week we were in Revelation chapter 11. And in Revelation chapter 11, we studied the seventh trumpet. And at the seventh trumpet, there were a series of things that we saw are going to happen. So we've studied seals, we've studied trumpets, and we got to the last trumpet in Revelation 11. And at that trumpet sounding, what it symbolically shows is going to start to happen is that that is the moment that Jesus is going to start his return to earth. 
When that seventh trumpet, that's going to be the, the, the sound that, okay, Jesus the king is starting his return back. Along with that, there's going to be these events that happen on earth. Again, according to the perspective that we're taking, that this describes things in the future, if, if that perspective is true, then with that, there's going to be some things that happen on earth that are discussed in the seven bowls. We'll talk about that in Revelation 16. And all of this is going to be marking the final defeat of Satan. So seventh trumpet blows. Jesus is starting to come back. That means the enemy is starting to be defeated. And as Jesus is starting to come back, all of these events of the seven bowls that we'll see in a couple of weeks are going to start to happen. Now, in the background of this, and in the background of everything that has preceded this in biblical history, and even up until what continues to happen after this through the end of Revelation, there is this snapshot of what is going on, and the reality is that prior to all this, contemporaneous with all this, and even after all this, Satan is in this war against God and his people, and Satan is undertaking attacks against God and his people. That began in Genesis chapter 3. And from Genesis chapter 3, throughout everything that happened in the Bible, and while all of this is happening, and while things will yet happen, there is this parenthetical that under that and behind that and now is these attacks that are coming from Satan against God and his people. And in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13, are kind of this snapshot focusing in on those attacks. Structurally, it's kind of this timeout, right? And so if the book of Revelation was a, a Netflix series that you were streaming, right, this episode would be like, okay, timeout, Let, let's focus on something else, and let me just spend some time talking about this that has go, been going on throughout the larger story and this backstory, and that backstory is contained in Revelation chapters 12 and 13. And so it ends with Jesus finally defeating Satan, but we're not yet at that ending point. And so we're going to walk through the text and we're going to see several different attacks that are discussed. Okay? And so here is where we begin. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 12, and it says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Okay. It's obviously much of Revelation is symbolic, and we're going to work through what it means, and many scholars have, for a variety of reasons, come up with ideas about what it means, and we're going to work through those. But here's what I just want to make sure you understand. I'm going to tell you what I think it means. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you what I think it means because that's what a lot of scholars think it means, Christian, evangelical, Orthodox scholars. I'm going to tell you what I think it means because it aligns with what is within the text, but I could be wrong. And, I, and we just got to say that because I think sometimes when we come to trying to interpret the symbols of Revelation, we can get really, really dogmatic and we can be absolutely convinced that we were right and we know exactly how it's going to happen. But the problem is with that, for thousands of years before Jesus, there were symbols and metaphors about the coming of Jesus. And all sorts of people who saw those thought that they understood exactly what it was going to look like when Jesus came the first time. And in many ways, they were wrong. They missed it, right? They didn't see it. They, and so we can take a stab at what it means. It's, it's reasonable, but I'm just saying I could be wrong. So just keep that in mind. All right, so what do we think the woman symbolizes? Well, what it seems the woman symbolizes, we're going to see three characters. The first is the woman. Two options. It could be talking about the nation of Israel. It could be talking about the Jewish people, God's covenant people, who are in a relation, right? So it could be referring to the Jewish people. And part of the reason scholars think that is because there are these 12 stars on her head, which refers to, could refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. So a lot of scholars think that, okay, this is a reference to the Jewish people, Israel. 
Other scholars are like, yes, it is a reference to Israel and to the Jewish people, but it's not just a reference to Israel. It's also a reference to all Christians after Jesus, right? So both Israel and the church. And so depending on different theology, some people will say this is Israel. Other people will say it is Israel and the church. And so the text then tells us a little bit about the woman, which affirms that there is some Israel Jewish piece to this. It tells us in verse 2 that she was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains. She was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains. What's really interesting is throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to symbolically as a pregnant woman. Many times the nation of Israel is referred to as a pregnant woman. If you're like me and man, one of the things I, I just, I really enjoy seeing cross references in the Bible. When I'm like, oh, pregnant woman in Revelation, I'm the nerd who scribbles it down in my margins other places. And so if that's you, here's a few places that this afternoon when it's pouring rain, you can see how Israel is referred to as a pregnant woman. Isaiah 26, 17 through 18. Isaiah 66, 7 through 9. Jeremiah 4.31, Micah 4.10, just four of many references in the Old Testament that refers to Israel as a pregnant woman. And the reason that is made is because the analogy is just like this pregnant woman, a pregnant woman is waiting for that baby to come with hope of what is yet to come. And throughout Scripture, Israel was waiting in hope for the Messiah to be born. Right, waiting for something that had yet to be happening. So there's this scene where it's this picture of Israel, and maybe the church, maybe not, but, but waiting for the Messiah to come. And we're then introduced to the second character. And this second character is in verse 3, and it says this, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Now, we're lucky here because we absolutely know what this symbol is. We can't, we're not wrong about this because later on, about six verses later, the text tells us what this dragon represents. And in verse 9, it says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, and then it tells us what it's a symbol for, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. <clears throat> so there's Israel, the people of God, waiting for the Messiah to be born. The next character is Satan, the enemy who's on the scene. And interestingly, if you look at 12.9, it refers to, um, or actually the prior verse refers to, in verse 3, this dragon having seven heads. If you get really into deep into the books and charts, what some people will say is that this represents seven world empires throughout history, which Satan worked through. And interestingly, as you get in deep into Revelation, what some scholars say is this ten horns represents a ten-nation confederacy. That in the future, what some branch of scholars think is that the Antichrist is going to gather ten nations and through those ten nations create this world confederacy through which for a period of time he's going to try to reign on earth and attack God's kingdom. Is that right? I don't know. I don't know. But, but uh, it, it could be. And a lot of people think that. Now, it's just good to know. Now, what doesn't necessarily become productive is like spending 72 hours today trying to figure out, well, what 10 countries are part of that? Okay, because we don't necessarily know. But so anyway, the big picture is this is uh, Satan. This is the enemy. We have Israel waiting to give birth. We have an enemy out there. And what is this dragon doing? And this is where the language was like bizarre. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. First character on the scene is Israel and or the church who is waiting for something to come. Second character on the scene is the enemy. And now we see this third child on the scene, this child who's about to be born. 
And that child who's about to be born represents the Messiah, represents Jesus. And what the text is telling us is, hey, readers, I'm going to give you a snapshot of one skirmish in history, one battle between the enemy and the people of God and God. And that battle was when Jesus was about to be born, Satan was trying everything he could to devour him and destroy the king. And if you know the Christmas story, what actually happens is when the king, Herod, hears about a baby who might be born who has claims to be the king, you know what Herod does? Herod issues this death decree that every baby who's about to be born, I want them slaughtered. And a lot of scholars think that that is the way that Satan in this moment was trying to devour the Messiah who is about to be born. But Satan's efforts didn't end there because then he worked and through the sovereignty of God and the willingness of Jesus and all of that aligning, Jesus was murdered. And in that moment, what Satan might have thought is, ah, <clears throat> I finally won. I couldn't devour him when he was born, but I've got him now. But that isn't what happened. He was resurrected. He was ascended after that. And the text in Revelation actually tells us that because in verse 5, it tells us how the child wasn't devoured. She gave birth to a male child, one his twos to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Referring to the way that, yeah, Jesus was murdered, but he was then resurrected. He was then ascended. He was caught up, this child who was born to God. And the woman fled into the wilderness, which likely refers to the way the Christians, after Jesus' death and resurrection and through the era of the older church, were pursued and were persecuted and took off. And, and here's the first attack that we see being referenced for us in our journey through the attacks throughout time is this. Satan tried to destroy and defeat Jesus. In the past, what the text tells us is Satan tried to defeat and destroy Jesus. After that, after he lost, does he give up? Does he stop? Is he like, well, <clears throat> game over? No. No because there's a whole lot of more verses that describe more attacks. Next skirmish, next conflict that's described is in verses 7 through 11. Um, and I'm going to read them. And, and what's really interesting is there is, a, uh, there is a present conflict that is described in 7 and 11, which is a larger chapter that I verses think that describe a yet future conflict. So let's read it and we'll unpack it. Next attack. Now. A war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come... For the accuser, now this is, this is going to be a little like highlight of a present attack buried within this future attack. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even until death. A war arose in heaven. Verse 7, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The question is, when is this war, when is it, did it happen? And some scholars think it refers to when Satan, he, before the world was created, he staged a coup against God. Some scholars think it refers to that, but vast majority of the scholars think that this will be a yet future attack. A yet future attack somewhere during the tribulation, there is going to be Satan's attempt in a spiritual realm to try to charge a heavenly kingdom one more time. So, so we're going to think about that in a minute. But what's really interesting is buried within this description of a future attack, we see this snapshot of something that Satan does right now, of something that my enemy and your enemy, if you're a Christian, does right now. Because right now what the Bible teaches is that Satan still has access to God. In the book of Job, Satan was coming and going up access to God. 
What is one of the things that Satan is doing when he goes up to heaven? The text reveals the way that Satan is doing some things right now. Verse 10, the accuser of our brother has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before the Lord, who accuses them day and night before our God. What Scripture shows is that Satan still has some access to communicate with God. And part of what Satan is doing right now is he is deceiving and he is accusing. He is deceiving and he is accusing. The second snapshot of this attack is a present one. Satan presently tries to defeat God's people through accusations and deceit. He goes up to heaven like he did with Job. He's like, God, the only reason that dude, that dude doesn't really love you, he just loves you because you gave him a lot of stuff. Satan in this moment is actively working to destroy you and destroy me if we're followers of Jesus through deceit and through accusations. Through accusations that he brings to God about you, like that guy claims to love you, God, and not only accusations that he brings to God, but ways in which he accuses in you, in your own heart, in your own mind. Let's, we're going to sticky note that, and we're going to come back to it. But there's this present attack that Satan presently tries to defeat God's people through accusations and deceits. But at some point, Satan is going to go beyond just present accusations in this moment. And like we said in this description of a war arising in heaven, um, it describes this third attack where Satan is going to stage a future coup or war in heaven. Satan, a third attack, if we're correct, during the tribulation period of somewhere during the seventh trumpet after it, Satan's going to be like, I'm going to try one more time. Some supernatural demonic attack in a realm we don't see. But once again, in that moment, Satan is going to fail because we've read in verses 8 and 9, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the destroyer, deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This was Satan, Satan's second expulsion eviction from heaven. And this is a final one. And after this, Satan, in a heavenly way, what the text seems to be telling us, is going to be defeated. No more access to God. No more access to heaven. He has been evicted. He has been expelled. He has no more place there. The expulsion is a permanent one. And in that moment, the text tells us how Satan responds to that. And he responds in a way that I kind of saw somebody respond to something when they were thrown out. I went to a local basketball rivalry several years ago between two schools that will remain anonymous. They will remain anonymous. And in the court, and it was, these teams do not like each other. They, and I love basketball. I lo- ba- there is nothing better than a cold winter day, the smell of that gym and that hardwood and the <laughs> of the squeaking. So I'm like, I took one of my, you know, my kids, which is basketball, and man, it was chippy. The, 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 elbows, the elbows were being thrown, and it was, it was getting heated. And it's one of these games that you want to get in your car quick and drive away because you know there's going to be a scuffle in the parking lot, right? So um, at one point in the game, this forward, this big dude from one side, he'd, he'd been chippy all night long. And man, he got one technical, and he did not like that. And that made him get another technical. And then the boy was tossed. And he was tossed in dramatic fashion. Because I have this theory that when you're refing a basketball game between two rivals, you as the ref kind of think it's your job to get in a little bit of the drama too. So, I mean, when it was a toss, it was like a wind the arm up and you're gah toss. And half of the gym is like, yes. This, now, 
I've done a few things in my life, like I've said, right? I used to arrest people who made bad choices. I have seen people who are not happy with their circumstances. This dude lost his mind. (laughs) I was actually scared sitting 45 rows away from a 17-year-old, okay? He did not want to get tossed out. He did not want to get tossed out. So he started screaming, this primal scream. He started kicking the chairs. He was throwing water bottles. And I mean, it wasn't, he was angry. He goes out the gym. You hear doors slamming, lockers, and I'm like, oh, good grief. This Maybe I should just go now, right? Because he didn't want to go. And when he was told to go, and when he was told, you're not coming back, Man, he was filled with rage, and he was so angry, there was this trail of chaos and anger that followed him on the way out, and that, in the future day, if we're right, one moment when Satan is finally, and God's like, get out of here for good. Satan's not going to want to be kicked out of access to God because Satan's going to start to realize, man, his power is starting to get curtailed. And he's going to be like that dude who left the game that's filled with rage and causes chaos as a swirl around him on his way out. And I know that because the text tells this because it tells us in verse 12. There's these voices that are so happy that he's never going to come to heaven again, but then listen to what they say. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you and in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Woe to you, earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He is angry. And what's being described in the text is this violent rage against pretty much anything he can see in this future day. And at first it lashes out against anyone, but then we see this focus on, okay, now it's not just anyone. Now it's Christians who are still present on that earth during that time. Again, are they present there because there was a rapture and they became Christians after the rapture? Perhaps. Are they present there because our understanding of a rapture may not line up with what will happen? Perhaps. But he's like, okay, I'm going to focus my attention on the people, the children of the guy that kicked me out. Now, we know God is going to protect us. We've heard that God protects us from his wrath, right? We've heard about hope. We've heard about all sorts of those things that doesn't necessarily mean protection from bad consequences, but from the wrath of God. But we see that focus because here's what it says. And the dragon, verse 13, when he saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. What it's saying is, look, he's now pursuing the woman, the people of God, whether that be Israel or Israel in the church, but essentially either way, what he's now doing is he's like, man, I'm going to pursue the people of God. The people of God who have had this Messiah, this king rescue them, I'm going after them. Now we see protection in there, right? But here's the fourth attack that's being described. The fourth attack is this. Satan will continue trying to harm God's people during the tribulation. That's what the text seems to be saying. Yet, in a way we may not be able to fully understand, we see protection of God's people in this. Because verse 14, again, super symbolic, but it says this, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time and times and time a half. Wings throughout the Old Testament are are symbols of God's protection. God's sovereign, loving protection and care. And in a way that we may not be able to understand, the hope and the thing for trust in here is, look, God knows what's coming towards his people. But he's using his protection, his wings, right? So that somehow they will be protected, not necessarily from every attack, because we know there's going to be martyrs, but there is some sort of sovereign protection over God's people during this time. Some scholars can read a rapture into this, right? Given wings so that she may fly away. Could be, could not be. 
But what is given is this idea of hope to God's people during this time of focused attack by the enemy, that God sees them, and he's using his wings and his protection that have been with them throughout the whole story to continue to protect them then. And then the, the text kind of ends in verse 17. Well, there's more language. I'll, I'll just read it. Given two, wing, given two wings of the great eagle, so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in the flood. But this is another evidence of God's protection. The earth came to the help of that woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. What does that mean? I don't know. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And verse and chapter 13 is then, right, this line that the dragon became furious and went off to make war. Chapter 13 takes that and then unpacks what that means. Okay, so next week, what we're going to do is say, okay, we see this this fuller, more telescopic understanding of what does that mean? What is this making war? What is this attacking? And that's what 413 and some other chapters reference, and we're going to see that, okay? But today, in chapter 12, God has revealed to us what appears to be a record of four different battles between the enemy of God and the people of God that have happened throughout history and that will happen in history. And we've seen that Satan tried to destroy and defeat Jesus. We've seen that Satan presently tries to defeat God's people through accusations and deceit. We've seen that Satan will stage, if we're right, a future coup or war in heaven. And we see Satan will continue to harm God's people during the tribulation. So what do we do with this? Okay, what? That's, we know what the text means. Now, what do we do with it today? Well, here's uh, kind of the first thing. Here's the first thought of what we do with it today. First response, be aware that there is an enemy. Be aware that there is an enemy. A couple uh, weeks or so ago, I don't know if you knew this, but the northern lights were visible in Connecticut. Did anybody know that? Oh, yes, no. The northern lights were visible in Connecticut. And somebody in our church, uh, great photographer Christopher Lewis, <clears throat> went, whoa, <laughs> thought there was a puppy running around on stage for a minute. Okay. Now, let me tell you something. What, what do you all see up there? Well, huh? You see the northern lights. When Christopher Lewis went out in this field, and he looked up in the sky. Do you know what he saw? Nothing. Nothing. He saw sky, stars. He did not see any northern lights. And he's thinking to himself, I must have missed it, right? I thought when he put his camera and took a picture, that this captured what was really there even though he couldn't see it with his naked eye. There was something, there are northern lights there. I am not an astrophysicist, but there are northern lights there. But yet, with his naked eye, he couldn't see them. But that didn't mean they weren't there. We have an enemy. And we can't see him with our naked eye. But just because we can't see him with our naked eye does not mean that he is not there. He's there. And let's shoot, let's let's be straight, right? Here's what the text tells us about that. Ephesians 6, 12, 4, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
our enemy is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We can't see that. But what the text tells us is it's there. And there is an enemy that is a spiritual force of evil in a realm you can't see who's there. And we know what he wants to do. Because we're warned to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Because your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking what? Someone to what? Isn't that interesting? What was the dragon trying to do with the child in the revelation that we read? What was he trying to do? That's a big word. Not discourage. Not have a bad day. Devour. And there have been one or two moments in my life um, where I've observed the stories of other people and I have seen how sin has devoured them. Doesn't mean there's not grace, does not mean there's not restoration, does not mean there's not forgiveness, it does not mean anybody's lost their salvation. It just means that choices have had consequences, and for a moment, for a season, that consequence was being devoured. And I think in a way that as a kid who grew up winning most every sword drill, except John Krakowska or Robert Krieger were faster on the draw, <clears throat> um, Man, it hit me in that moment like, okay, this is real. Because you know what Satan would love to do? He would love to devour you. So that anybody who has ever heard you say you're a Christian will be able to say, see? See? You know what Satan would love to do? Devour me and all of our minister team and all of our elders and all of our staff so that anybody who has seen everything horrible that Christian leaders can do would see that happen again here at Calvary and say, see? I'm not taking my kid to their summer camp. Forget that. And I think sometimes we take it lightly. Um, but there's an enemy that's not wanting to take it lightly. He wants to dishonor the name of Jesus in any way that he can, and he's, he wants to do it by taking us down with it. But it's true. But we need to approach this whole idea that we have an enemy carefully. Okay, we don't want to oversteer, understeer on this. Um, if you've ever driven a boat, boats are kind of weird things to drive if you've never driven them at first, and especially when you're trying to dock them somewhere, and there's current, and there's wind, and you just gotta, you gotta just, you gotta steer the perfect balance. Because what sometimes happens as a boat is you're driving around the boat and you're coming into dock and you kind of go like this and you turn the, the wheel, but it doesn't happen as quick as in a car. And so then what you think is, oh, wait, I need to, and you oversteer. And then you end up like this. And then you oversteer. And then you end up like this, right? When you're driving a boat, if you're oversteering, you're, you're going to be. But at the same time, if you're driving a boat and you just let the currents take you and you understeer, who knows when you can end up there, right? Here's the second reality. We need to have the right approach when it comes to realizing that we have an enemy. Here's what a guy named C.S. Lewis said about this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He's saying when it comes to the reality of spiritual warfare, we can oversteer in one of two ways. And the first way we can oversteer is we just don't believe in them. But the second way we can oversteer is we can just see them everywhere. And I think maybe as Christians, look, your enemy is not a silly little dude in a red costume with a tail and horns and a pitchfork. He's not. I think the enemy loves us to think about that because then we think he's a char cartoon character that we can manage. And what ends up happening when we're in that place is, man, we trivialize who he is and what the deal is. But on the flip side, if you come over to my house and you taste my spaghetti sauce, which is 
you agree. Peter, you were right last week when you said yours is the best spaghetti sauce that's ever been made. And you taste it, and the truth will set you free. But in that moment, you get a little bit of spaghetti sauce on your white shirt. That is not necessarily a spiritual attack. And I think what we do in churches is we either ignore it or we're like weirdos, right? Anything that ever happens to us, the devil made me do it, it's a spiritual attack. No and no. It is careful, wise, sobered steering between those two realities. Here's the second response, right? Do not oversteer nor understeer when thinking about your enemy. What's the third response? And we only got one more after this, but here's a third response. Realize that your enemy's strategy is to deceive you and to accuse you. Know the strategy of your enemy. We've read it in verse 9 already, right? If we pop that up, it says, called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And you've already seen this, right? That we usually refer to not just as deceiver, but the next verse, other verse tells us that he's also this accuser of our brothers. Realize that Satan's strategy is to deceive you and to accuse you. He's going to deceive you and deceive me about the um, weight of sin. He's going to make us think we can handle it. He's going to deceive us and cause us to think we can manage it. He's going to deceive us and cause us to think it's good for us and better for us and God doesn't love us. And if God really loved you, he wouldn't allow this to happen or he would cause that to happen. And along with that deceit, that deceit takes a pernicious tone because those deceit is linked with accusations. And what Satan loves to do is get into your heart, mind, spiritually, however that works out, and just lie to you that, man, you're the worst. If you were really a good Christian... You wouldn't be like that. If, God, if you really loved God, you would... And there's just these accusations. And many times those accusations are linked with shame and condemnation. And if Satan can get you believing lies and accusations that make you feel shame and condemnation, man, he's got you in a place where your world is starting to spin. God is not a God of shame and guilt. God is a God of conviction of sin. But there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because what Jesus says is it is finished. And Jesus died once for all. And it's over. It's past. Consequences still remain. might remain, but the condemnation, the guilt, the, God has forgiven you. But the enemy doesn't want you to feel forgiven. The enemy wants you to forget that you are a deeply loved and adored child of God who has peace with God because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And he wants you to get stuck in a vortex of guilt and shame and condemnation, and that is the work of the enemy, and know his strategy. And when you're in that place, do you know what you need and what I need? Man, I need other brothers and sisters around me who are going to speak truth to me. Because if I try to process accusations and shame and guilt and uh, all by myself, I can't do it. But I need people who know me, who love me, to come alongside me and speak truth to me. And so do you. So do you. Being part of a body of Christ is an amazing blessing that is there to help us on our worst days. And you are in a body of Christ to help someone else on your wor- their worst day. We're not meant to do this alone. And we have an amazing ability to have people who love us say to us, bro, broette, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is now peace with God. 
for I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor any power nor things to come nor things present nor things in the past will ever, 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 ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We need people to speak truth to us when we have speak, people speaking lies to us. Who speaks truth to you? Encouraging truth. And who around you, when they're having a bad day, may God have placed you there so that you could be the one to speak words of truth and the value they have in God to them in those moments. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here, and I'm going to invite a prayer team to come up. As part of being in a body and part of people who can speak truth to you is having people who can pray for you. And each week we have folks over there who are trained, who are spiritually mature, who are willing to pray for you if you have anything going on, or you just need some truth, you need some peace, whatever it is. And then there's a process where those requests at your request get passed along to pastoral staff to come along if that's what you want. And so there's a way for you not to have to, even on a Sunday morning, to be here alone. And as we leave and as we're about to worship, here's the fourth response to know this. Ready? Know that God's power is bigger than Satan's attacks. Is this sobering? Yeah. Is this scary? Some of it, yeah. But hey, 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 let's not forget who's in charge. Let's not forget who's in charge. Because time and time and time again, Satan's like, I got it. And you know what God says? Get out of here. You're a defeated enemy. And my power is so much bigger than your attacks. This is not a reason for hopelessness. This is a reason for hope in the God who made us, the God who knows us, the God who authors our story, and the God who has committed himself to sending the king not to die as a substitute, but to rule and to reign and to fulfill every whisper that we've ever known of what life is meant to be. We have whispers of what we don't experience, of what we want to experience, and those whispers are say, saying to us, there is a land that we have not yet traveled that is better than we can ever imagine, and one day that will be seen. And God is bigger than any of Satan's attacks. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and together we're going to affirm this hope that we have in our Father who loves us and who adores us and who sent King Jesus once to rescue us and who one day will rescue us again.